Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampkin. My guest today is a licensed counselor and a chemical dependency counselor, Mr. Jonathan Kearney. Thank you for joining me. What's up, Lamp? Hey, man. Thank you for having me, man. Pleasure to be here. I know we've been uh, working on putting this together for some time now, so I, I, I appreciate uh, you being gracious and, and patient with me, and I'm happy to be here today. Hey, man, it's an honor, you know, because, you know, we both grew up in Capitol Heights and you done gone on to do great things with your career. So it's only right that I could get you on the podcast and I truly appreciate you doing it. You're welcome, man. I appreciate you. First of all, how you been, man? How's everything going? Wonderful, man. Wonderful. Uh, we're here, obviously, trying to navigate uh, this COVID disease and, uh, you know, keep each other safe and do what we can. So we're, we're learning how to function in this new world. Uh, other than that. We're home for the holidays. The kids are, are occupied with new Christmas gifts and toys. So I think they're enjoying themselves and, and uh, everything else is going well. You In the intro, I mentioned that you were a licensed um, chemical dependency counselor. I wanted you to talk more about that because that title fascinated me. Okay, sure. So throughout the nation, you can get licensed independently in whatever state you reside. And uh, I have a two licenses here in the state of Texas. One is licensed professional counselor, and the other is a licensed chemical dependency counselor. Essentially with the latter, the licensed chemical dependency counselor, uh, it is me being able to work with individuals who uh, have a history of substance use and or diagnosed with a substance disorder. What, it, what that means is I will probably work in different settings where you might have uh, sort of like drug rehab centers. Also, I've worked with individuals in like the prison or jail systems. And a lot of times you'll have individuals who come in who have both a mental health diagnosis or concern, but they also may have a history of substance and drug use. And really what you wanna be able to do is to address both things at the same time both whatever mental health concerns are coming up, but also how to support them with addressing their, their uh, substance needs and, and, and use. Um, and that starts particularly a lot of times with a detox. So a lot of times if someone is coming into a facility um, or needing treatment, they might come in under the influence. And before you can address or reach them where they are, talk to them, you really need to get them sober from whatever intoxicating substances are in their body. After that occurs, we start to focus on a helping approach where we're trying to have a form of understanding and meeting the person where they are and helping them to decide for themselves, hey, you know, is this something that I wanna start to work toward um, treating? Am I interested in stopping this drug? How is it impacting my life? Um, what type of outcomes have been a result of my substance use. And once we get them to talk about those things and realize, you know, hey, you know, this is something that is having a detrimental impact, then we start talking about what we need to do to change the lifestyle. And that's never an easy, easy thing to do when you talk about substance use. Um, there's an old thought that willpower is enough, but even if you go talk to the old heads, in their peer support groups, like an AA and A and so forth, they'll tell you willpower is not enough. Um, you're gonna need support from the community. You're gonna need treatment in, in many cases. Um, you're gonna need therapy, someone to talk to about whatever traumas and things that have occurred in your life that have uh, 
resulted in you continue to use substances in many instances in order to just numb the feelings or to not think about them at all. And so um, with that chemical dependency license, essentially I've had some extensive training and work in that population with that population I've tested in order to show competence in the area to be able to uh, specifically work with individuals who have a substance use disorder. Because of the times when um, COVID, you know, people locked in, uh, just, just the overall impact of COVID, has that changed the amount of patients that you see? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to prevent becoming one myself through this process. <laughs> um, so, so of course, yes, we, we know that the incidences and in, in use of uh, illicit substances or non-illicit substances, including alcohol, have gone up through the pandemic. Um, it, you know, it's a tough thing and, and no one can tell you the answer to deal with this because no one has ever been through this, right? They're, they're, the, the closest to it, I'm sure, are, are dead and gone when they first dealt with whatever the flu when that first, you know, hit. So um, we're learning as we go along and um, I couldn't, couldn't sit here and pretend to have all the answers, but yes, obviously um, substance use has gone up because of a, a direct result because of the pandemic, people being home, people being scared, um, people being uncertain about what is to come. And, and a lot of times people just wanna separate fr from it, not think about it um, and using something to get your mind off of it is the best way to deal with it. You, you said something in a joking manner, but it kind of made me think of another question. Are you a drinker yourself? Do you, do you I do. drink socially or? I do, I do drink socially, yes. So because you're a drinker and you deal with people with like chemical dependency, drugs issues, mm -hmm. does that, does that kind of play on your mind? Like, Hey, am I headed down the wrong road? Could I possibly go down this road? Does that have a factor into your, your mindset? Absolutely. So it's sort of a two-part question. The first I'll, I'll address is probably more interesting is the history of substance use within my own family, um, specifically on my father's, my paternal side. Uh, we've got a number of individuals in the family who um, have had bouts with substance use, specifically crack cocaine. And so when you're talking about uh, the use of those substances and a sort of addictive personality, as we talk about, you are always concerned with, um, you know, do I have the gene, as we call it, that I don't have a stopping point for this particular use with anything, whether it be gambling or substances or pornography. Um, you have to consider all of those things. When, at what point are you crossing that threshold where now you're no longer in control any longer and the substance is taking control over you? Um, as it relates to working with individuals, I don't want to come off as a hypocrite or someone to say, well, you can't relate to what I'm going through because you get to use alcohol and I don't, or, or you're a hypocrite because you're telling me not to do it, but yet you are. The last thing you can do is lie to them, though. You don't want to do that. You want to be completely transparent and say, well, everybody is not the same in their ability to regulate uh, the consumption or use of alcohol, specifically if we're talking about that. One of the things that uh, more recent science has learned is that the problem with alcohol use is the individuals who um, usually have a challenge with it don't get sick. And that's part of the problem, or at least they don't get sick until we get to the point of it's poisonous now. And now you're needing your stomach pump so you don't die. 
Mm. Where when you and I typically drink, if we consume too much, it'll get to a point where that voice in the head say, it's time to stop. I can't take anymore. I'm getting ready to pass out or the room is going to be spinning or I'm going to be vomiting and spinning up all over the place pretty soon. Whereas with your traditional alcoholic, um, they don't usually get to that point, at least not fast enough. So they can consume copious amounts of alcohol without feeling sick. And so they just continue to experience all the fun stuff that comes with it, right? The, the uninhibited, un, un, uninhibited behavior, the social stuff, you know, the fun, the joy, um, until it becomes a danger. Because what is occurring is they're still going to be intoxicated. They're still not going to be able to drive. Um, the body is still a poison to the body. So if you have too much of it, you can still kill yourself. But the cutoffs aren't there. Mm-hmm. And so that once you learn that, I think people are educated there think it helps them to understand a little bit different why their alcohol consumption may look a lot different from mine or someone else's. Well, I'll say this because um, since we were talking about family, ironically on my, on my father's side of the family, alcohol is a huge issue. And that's one of the reasons I do not drink at all. Like I don't, I don't consume alcohol at all because I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to understand that I do have a fear of not being able to control it. Got like, it. because it's it's defeated my father, mm. my uncles, some of my cousins. And so it's like, uh, rather than go down that road, I just don't drink it because, and, and I hate the taste of it. And, and I'm grateful to God. I hate, I hate the taste of alcohol. So right. I, I, I don't drink it at all. Good. I applaud you for that. I think that's a, certainly a, a great decision. And, and to that same degree, um, and, and not to make light of it, but I don't smoke crack cocaine at all. <laughs> See, I, 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 think, I think another thing that we learn is, so, and I'll just be completely transparent here, with my father, for instance, he never had a problem with his alcohol use, at least none that I'm aware of. Um, where he is more of an inclined, and since we're, we're probably getting more into mental health, he's more inclined to be a depressed type of personality, meaning he isn't, he's never been necessarily diagnosed with depressive disorder. I don't know that he's ever seen a clinician to tell him one way or the other, but I suspect he's more inclined to be depressed than anything else, which means having a substance that is a stimulant, crack cocaine, would obviously make him feel less depressed and a happier person. So to that same degree, anything that's a stimulant, I don't want to touch ever. You know, I'm not even a, not even a non-illicit stimulant. Because I'm probably more inclined to be a more depressed individual, which means whatever I can do to not feel depressed makes me feel a whole lot better. Right. Mm. And so just the opposite, people who might feel a little bit too up or feel like they're feeling too much at all and want to numb that may look for more of a depressant type of substance and may be more inclined to overdo and overindulge in alcohol use. Mm. What is what's a stimulant? What's some what's a stimulant drug? Yeah. So, yeah. So stimulants are anything that's an active uh, substance that essentially increase your energy, right? Or it it, it gives you um, different neurotransmitters in your brain, happy hormones, things that make you feel excited, things that make you feel up. Uh, Caffeine is a stimulant, right? Um, Smoking a cigarette is a nicotine is a stimulant. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't want to forget about those things because people just assume, hey, we're just all talking about listed substances. But no, everyday common use substances are are the most common stimulant. Um, And so then when we look at like, even if you're talking about psychoactive drugs for treatment, 
you think about something like Ritalin or Adderall used for ADHD as a stimulant. Now, I know you're saying, well, I thought part of the reason is they jumping off the wall. Well, when you give it to a kid who's already up, it does the reverse effect. It makes them crash, essentially. Uh, so stimulant is something that's going to bring you up, essentially. And cocaine is one of the more known illicit stimulants that exist. Mm. Let's go back to the beginning, um, because me and you, we grew up in the um, Capitol Heights. Mm-hmm. One thing I ever knew because you you went did you you went away to school right if I'm not mistaken for college, yeah, mm-hmm. college I went to Xavier in uh, Louisiana right that's what I thought mm-hmm. was this always your goal to get into the mental health field? Uh no so <laughs> like like most people will tell you going to Xavier you're usually going there because you're you're interested in, in medicine and you, you're thinking bio pre med. Um, the vast majority of the population there, Xavier University, uh, my my alumni, um, is the number one college, or at least was, I don't know if Howard is taking them now, but was the number one college for graduating African-Americans and putting them into medical programs throughout the nation. Wow. So like everyone else, my intent was, oh, I'm going to become a doctor. And part of the reason for that is because I'm I'm not a millennial. I refuse to, to claim that I'm a zennial. I'll call that, which is that little space between about 78 <laughs> and 83. If you're born right there, right, right before um, you went from analog to complete digital and, and the cell phones hit. Um, I, you know, I grew up with Gen X and as my, uh, as my guide and, and the baby boomers and all the baby boomers taught you growing up, especially for black folks, you know, you got to work really, really hard. You got to go to school, get a degree, and then come back out and, and work really, really hard for somebody. And <laughs> hopefully someday you'll make enough money and have your pension and you'll retire, right? They didn't teach us like millennials and Gen Z to go out and uh, go on YouTube and drink milk through a straw through your nose and make a million dollars because you got you know, two million <laughs> followers as you do it. And so, you know, it was, all right, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to the profession that you know that you can make a lot of money in, presumably, right? course that take took for granted they didn't know anything about how much it would cost to have medical malpractice insurance how much it would cost to go to through medical school none of these things because i didn't come from money no one was going to pay for any of this stuff um and then i didn't realize hey i'm not really even interested in this and so <laughs> when i um my, my high school year i took a, a, a course in psychology and i found it really intriguing and interesting but I didn't make much of it. And until I got to that biomed pre program, like this stuff is making no sense at all. It's way too abstract, not getting all these molecules. And then I took another psychology course. I was like, this is great. You know, this is wonderful. It helps me to understand why people behave and do some of the things that they do. And it helps me understand, you know, a little bit of my upbringing and some of the behaviors and things that I observed in the community. Okay. What- so what would you say the biggest challenge was in Xavier? The ratio was, I think, 11 to 1, if I'm not mistaken, females to males. So that was probably oh. <laughs> that was probably one of the bigger challenges. Um, second to that, obviously, the, the, the coursework, um, it, it was a beast. Like, it wasn't, I call it the, the, the Black Harvard. I mean, it, it was not for punks. Like, this was a really, really challenging uh, core and curriculum. And while I I didn't have the whole, I need to get to college and have the college experience of wilding out because we grew up in Capitol Heights. I had already done all of that. <laughs> I had my first drink at about 14 years old, you know, <laughs> already been to the dice game, already been shot at, already been with people to do things I had no business doing, already been around the drug dealers and all of that. 
already mm-hmm. been to the club and already been to U Street and the black hole <laughs> to see this band and that band and that performer. So I, there was no chase for anything that was like, oh, I get to college and I get the wild out. Nope, sorry, I had already done it. Um, but it was having the structure and knowing just, you know, what it took to really, uh, really do well within that particular field. Um, I think that was generally just the biggest challenges for me. Who would you say helps you the most get through through college? Wow. Uh, probably my community, probably my, my closest friends there. You know, we, we, it was interesting, you, you know, you generally tend to flock around individuals who are similar to yourself and that help coming up having friends that came from communities and environments that were a lot like yours, right. Or their upbringings were a lot like yours. I always joke and tell people that, you know, while I grew up in this type of environment or community, I wasn't never no thug, you know, I was like the Kendrick Lamar of the community, right? Like I was a good kid, mad city, you know, it was yeah. like, I, I understood what I came from. I was around dudes that was about that life and about that business. I never had to be because they were, and I was like their little brother. So they all took look out for me. And when I got to college, you know, I, my roommate coincidentally happened to be the same thing. He was from Southside Sack, you know, like he put me on the SIBO and all these other real gangster LA crip <laughs> rapping crazy Cali dudes. And that like, that was the environment he grew up in, but he was never that guy. You know what I mean? He always kept his head down, stuck in his books, did what he needed to do. And so I didn't feel alone. I think that's, it, you create an environment or a support system. My other best friend was from South side of Chicago. You know what I mean? He grew up <laughs> in around the wild hundreds, but his mom knew that they needed to get him out of there and pulled him and his brother and sister out and went to a better community and um, afforded them a better life. And, you know, they focused on their books and, and they did what they needed to do. So it helped to be around individuals who had those similar exposures and experiences where it's like, hey, you know, we're around a bunch of really, really smart, you know, the, the top, top of the top percent of African-Americans and everybody, for the for the record too, I went to Howard after that. So for all the Howard alumni who who want to argue that Howard is the mecca, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say just step a foot on on Xavier's campus for for a month and then let's have that discussion. But yeah, but we were around some of the most elite African Americans that you could find. They were from all over the nation. They came there because they all wanted to be you know doctors. And um, sometimes you feel like a fish out of water because I can tell you where I grew up, I certainly didn't see or was exposed to that. You because you mentioned uh, Xavier is so elite and it's a medicine school, a school mm-hmm. um, known for its medicine programs. Yep. Did you ever feel like you didn't belong there? All the time. Yeah, you talking about imposter syndrome. I mean, I, you know it. It it was obvious and apparent to me that as smart as I thought I was and as well as I did in my AP courses coming out of high school, it did not prepare me for Xavier. It did not prepare me for that program. And I realized quickly that there were a group of black folks in the country that didn't all grow up in the hood. Some of them grew up (laughs) in the suburbs and had a good life and came from lineages of doctors and, and attorneys and parents who had money and they're exposed to better education, better programming, better structure. So they come in with more tools already that put me at a disadvantage. And, and it was it was very clear. Mm. Mm-hmm. How, how did you how did you overcome it? Uh, really just realizing that 
so I did summer school <laughs> every semester I was there, all three years. I graduated on time, but my freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, I was there for summer school. And it was really the change in my concentration and finding something that I really enjoyed. That was one. And then two, really just staying in my head in the books, like never having a time to separate from it. Education was it. And so I knew that I didn't want to do what I was doing forever. And I wasn't going to be a dropout because going back home wasn't going to be it at that time of my life. We go back to the, the drug use story. Mm-hmm. And um, and that really, that was it. You know, and again, having that support system, again, having the, that group of friends who we all stuck through it and say, hey, we're going to get through this, you know, whatever that looks like for us, whatever concentration of field we go in. But I knew that I needed to finish it because again, coming from the baby boomer and Gen X generation, you know, that's what you had to do. Like success was you needed to go and complete college, right? We can have a conversation about that a little bit later now or whenever you get ready because <laughs> you know now today that that's not the truth, right? Like you, this, this Lance podcast can blow up and get 10 million followers and overnight, you know, now you got advertisers and, and, and the rest is history, regardless of everything you did beforehand. But that's not the story. That's not what we were given. Our parents did with us the best that they could. And what they knew was, hey, black folks didn't get opportunity to go to school. You get opportunity. That's what you need to do. You get education. You come out. You get a good job. You show up early. You stay late. You work really hard. And hopefully you retire with your pension and you're 403. There you go. Because of the background you came from, you we, like again, we both from Capitol Heights, so we know the struggle. We know, and you mentioned your father with the um, drug addiction, mm-hmm. so you had all that going. And in, in spite of all that, you finished college. So, what was the feeling like for you walking across that stage and getting your degree? Uh, apart from elation, I mean, of course, I was happy. I it was, it was bittersweet. You know, it was more like, okay, now reality is kicking in and what am I going to do now? You know, I think that that truth came to fruition because I don't know anybody in New Orleans. You know, I don't, I didn't have family in Louisiana. They had no reason to stay there at all. Uh, no, no one had offered me a job of employment of any type, nor was I looking for it at the time. So I knew I was going back home and I didn't know what that environment would look like for me. Now, my father had been out the house at this point in time and I actually, um, and I, I should have probably led with this at some point, he has cleaned up. He's gotten his life together. He's still around. He's doing well. He, but you know, he and my mom separated and divorced. And so it was, I'm going back home, but I know I don't want to stay in the home, right? I'm, I'm, I'm an adult now and I have to be mature. So going back to live with mom is going to have to be a temporary thing, but I knew it was going to be a, a momentary reality, reality for me. And so I was already starting to think about those things. I think I'm if you talk to any of my friends, they'll tell you I've always been very mature um, in my my thinking, um, usually thought outside the box or the crowd. I don't like to fit inside of a box. Um, and so I've, I've always tried to be forward thinking with respect to what is the most appropriate um, and responsible thing that needs to occur. So when you came when you came home, what, what, did, what did that transition look like coming back from the um, New Orleans back to Capitol Heights. Um, what did that transition look like? So <laughs> what, what was interesting was actually going was, I need to start from that process. Cause even if, if the listeners are listening, no, and they're like, 
he don't sound like he from from the area. Like, like where is his accent? Where he don't say Baba or Joe or Young or Mo or any of that stuff. Like, what's going on? I I got teased, right? Like we, you know, we we Joan as we say, or play the dozens or snapping or wherever you're from. You call it different things, but uh, you know what picked up with what picked up with them was my accent. I'm like, y'all got accents. Like y'all got accents too. <laughs> but um, I ch- I started changing my accent and being more conscientious and aware of it because I'm like, well, if I go home and get a job, if they saying I'm I'm saying my putting V's in the word mother, you know, like nobody's gonna hire me speaking that way. And um, so the accent went, which is funny. But what I also recognized wasn't necessarily from in within the school um, or the schoolyard or the school ground or perimeter, but was outside of that. So in New Orleans, it felt like DC. You know, it was mm-hmm. Louisiana's DC. The crime was bad, drug use was bad. It was just it, it, the city just looked rundown and decrepit. And you know, apart from Mardi Gras, which if you've ever been, which most people have, you know, smell like urine walking around on the street and you got people picking up their shirt to catch bees. You know, I know it's more to it than that. I don't want to reduce it to just that, but it didn't feel like this wonderful, beautiful island, like going to, you know, Hawaii or some Jamaican beautiful resort or something like that's not at all. Like it was the hood. Yeah. So what it, what it, what it, what, what I was open to was the concept that, oh man, there's a hood like this probably in every single city across this country. Because when you grow up in the hood, you grow up in your bubble and you're not exposed to anything other than what's in your bubble, unless you're fortunate to have a family to understand that you need to be exposed to more and get you out and expose you to different things. Um, The closest I had to that was going to North Carolina to grandma's in the summer, you know, like that was the extent of it. Other than that, everything was my little bubble. I couldn't even go home and figure out how to get anywhere other than places that I had already been with someone else, <laughs> most of which I needed to have driven by myself at least once to know. But you, you really don't even know. Like I've been so many places in the hood or in some different hood that I don't even know, like, hey, you been to this? And I'm like, nah, where's that? And like, man, you know, it's the here, there, there. You go around there, then the thing over there. You're like, oh, that's what that is? Like, you, don't, <laughs> you just don't even know. Like you, 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 you're so isolated and you think that your world and your, 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 your environment is, you know, it's probably five miles in any direction. And there's so it's more to life than just that. But I realized in New Orleans, folks operated and functioned the same way. They had their own style. Everyone, everyone wore Jabos and Rees or, or Air Force Ones and white tees. They all had their New Orleans accent. And I'm like, man, they seem like Capitol Heights cats. Like we all got our own little style and dress, you know, PG County thing. And say things the way we say everybody wear the abstracts or hobo or you know whatever if it does any of that stuff exist anymore you know but you know but it, it, it was the same it was the same type of thing and i realized i'm like man this is this is such a, a cultural eye-opening moment that um you know black folks in in, in different places kind of isolating their own little bubble and their world is no bigger than you know the five mile perimeter that they that they go all day and so when i got back home it was like being released from the matrix. I'm sorry. I had to go there to say it, but it was like, damn, man, like we still plugged in. (laughs) It felt like, it felt like I grew and learned something and it was like the environment hadn't changed. In fact, it it seemed like it had gotten worse. Mm. You know, like I, 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 I tell people all the time is that when you make it as a black person, you don't make it and stay at home you make it and move to the suburbs and go live in a white person's community. Your tax dollars go to white schools and white school districts and white roads to pave them and make them look nice into the HOA 
who determines and dictates what happens with your home and the grass being kept and stuff like that. Black folks, they their environments don't look like like that. And so if there's nobody helping to maintain it, if we're not taught and understand the importance of upkeep, then you come home and you see it and it's just falling more and more apart. Yeah. How how has growing up in Capitol Heights made you a better mental health professional? Oh boy. <laughs> so it, it made me more relatable to people, right? Okay. I, I, a lot of mental health professionals have the problem of, of coming in with an air of, of I'm better, you know, I've got it all together. And these people have things wrong with them and I need to fix them. Nah, see, I don't, I don't, my approach is generally not, we talk about like nature versus nurture. Um, while, and we say that nature meaning is biological, it's how it's just in you, you can't do anything about it. Nurture is what you learn and experience from your environment. I'm very much on the nurture end, right? I'm very much aware of, I'm only who I am because of my environment or mainly because of my environment. My, my family helped to drive and dictate and change a little things, but like my nuance, my behaviors, my personality, a, a lot nature, you know, of what I got from biology. But the experiences that I've gotten, how I've adapted to my community, how my community adapts to itself, how it changes in response to the rest of the world, um, that's all nurture. That's all, that's all socialization. And so I don't turn my nose up to people. You know, people are where they are because of truly because of their experiences. You know, mm -hmm. we were speaking off air before we came on talking about trauma that happens, abuse, physical, sexual abuse that happens in homes and things that changes a person, right? That affects who you are, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about the world. And if people don't address that, then you may get something or someone to think or behave a certain way that maybe they don't even necessarily agree with wholeheartedly. But, you know, this is a consequence of something they didn't ask for and something they had no control over. So when I think about my friends and the decisions that they made and people they made in the environment, I don't blame them, right? I hold them accountable. you like, they got to be accountable once they learn and understand there's a different way. I need to choose a different way, regardless of how difficult that may be. But, you know, I didn't choose my environment. You know what I mean? This is where I was raised. These are the things that, that I grew up in. Um, and they've affected my life in some way. And they've, they've led to this particular outcome. So when I'm working with folks, I approach it the same way, wherever environment, wherever they come from, you know, you are a part of what you were, were raised in and what you were around. My job is to unlock the idea in your mind that something else can exist. And there's a different way to do things other than what you've always been taught. I think about that same thing when I'm working, you know, just raising my own children and have this conversation a lot with my wife as well is that, hey, you know, everything that our parents taught us as valuable as they may have been they did the best with what they had and what they knew at that time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's still good. You know, <laughs> that That's don't true. mean we need to continue with those particular practices. And I'm not telling you to modify or discard your value system. I'm telling you to modify or discard your beliefs about um, what is adherence to your value system and what is detracting from it. Yes. So I'll give an example. Like we all have the, the value of my wife and I'll speak. Uh, have the value of respecting your, 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 your parents, right? You respect your parents. That's in the word. That's in a good book too. You respect and honor your parents. Right? Yep. right. But what we don't agree with is what we define as a show of disrespect. Mm. Right? So for my wife, you don't speak back. You don't share 
your thoughts about what that conversation was. If she tells you do something, you just do it. That's, that's the end of it. For me, hmm, I like the fact that my children are thinking, are, are being critical thinkers, right? If she got tone, if my daughter got tone when she respond back, that's a problem, right? But if she doesn't have tone and she's asking, hey, mommy, you told me to do this, but this ain't right because that, how am I supposed to reconcile that? I don't expect her to get yelled at for that, right? She's being a critical thinker. She's making sense of what is being asked of her and saying something's not connecting here. Help me make it make sense. But, but my wife may interpret that as an affront to her. And I'm like, no, she's not being disrespectful. She's being in the most respectful way, asking for clarity. And I think that is the thing that we have to start to reconcile with ourselves, um, especially in the black community, because, mm. you know, we carry on like any other community, carry on traditions, but a lot of our traditions, not, not a lot of, none of our traditions come from a healthy place, right? No, nah, they really don't. Maybe apart, maybe apart from our, our faith, right? Because it helps us to move on, but even that can cause some issues or concerns with over-reliance and not, and forgetting about that, faith without works part, right? You can't just sit on your knees and pray and just sit there and turn on the, you know, the game and drink a beer and expect God to come drop a blessing in your lap. You got to get up and move and do something, right? That's true. I want to back up a little bit because you said something really interesting because you was talking about your wife, you and your wife having a difference of opinion of um, discipline. Well, not dis you didn't say discipline. It was uh, talking back, right. disrespect. Mm -hmm. So how do you two come together? Because I think that's a struggle for a lot of us because you're not the only one that struggles with that. Yeah, so I learned the hard way because what I was doing first was correcting my wife in front of my child, <laughs> 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 which got me into a whole lot of trouble. So yeah, we definitely don't need to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so what I had to learn to do was keep my mouth shut, let it play out, calm down, go sit down somewhere in the corner, stay out of it and then pull my wife aside separately at a different time after she's calmed down and talked to her about it. And then pull my daughter aside at a separate time and let and talk to her about it and help her to understand, hey, you know, this is how mommy thinks and feels. Um, I know it's gonna be difficult, just don't respond. Just say, yes, ma'am. And just do whatever she says, you know, even if it don't make sense, just do it. And then, um, you know, I'll come back and I'll affirm to you later that, yeah, mommy didn't, that didn't make sense. <laughs> <what mommy told laughs> <you. laughs> like we can laugh about it later. Don't, don't take it too personal. I know you, you were right, but Hey, you just, you did right to shut up and do what she says. So does your background in with psychology, does it help you with that? Is that how, is that how, no. is that how you're no. able to... <laughs> Let me, let me, because I, I, I think you know, I think you know where I'm going, but I want to make sure I'm clear yeah. because you, because you've actually studied you're in the field, mm -hmm. does that help you be able to let your daughter develop like mentally? Because we don't, we don't give our kids a chance to develop and right. express themselves. I can honestly say I'm guilty of that myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, it does. I'm, I'm, I'm picking fun. Um, so they say doctors are the worst patients. So my, my just just for the record, my wife is a, a doctor in in, in uh, school psychology. So <laughs> she, oh. she she's, she's got all the tools <laughs> and the foundation as well to do better. But often we we just lose all of it in the midst of the emotional side and forget everything that. It, so I've been I've been watching, and I'm going to digress here just for a moment. I've been watching, or I've just finished watching Sopranos for the first time. You're right, hooray me! I know. It, I just I don't worry because I've never seen it. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. So it, you should watch. It is worth it. It's going to take you some time. Those very long, very long seasons. But anyway, the running thread through this is all about, you know, psychology, essentially. And whenever you see the, the doctors on screen, they're having this real psychological 
super, you know, over the top, heady conversation. And I'm laughing because I'm like, yeah, that never happens in my house. But everyone <laughs> assumes that to be the case because of all the education that we have between the two of us, that um, that's what the conversations would look like. But for the most part, we, we're just human beings. We forget all about our practice until we're in practice. And then you kind of turn it on like a light switch and you become what you should be for somebody else. Um, but yes, it has. So what, what ends up happening with me is I do a lot of like group trainings and stuff. And so it's hard to provide that group and information education to people and then not apply it at home. So I'm very introspective for myself. Like I would love for my wife to take heed some of the advice that she's able to give to others, but I can't control or dictate the time and when she decides to use it. Right. But for myself, I certainly try to make a practice of, yeah, you know, I understand. I teach people all the time about differences in values and, and beliefs because this is where we usually lose control, where we think something is an affront to what we believe to be true. I always explain to people, listen, the rest of the world is not responsible for your value system. The only person responsible for your value system is you. That's mm. it. So you're the only one responsible for maintaining it, honoring it, and showing it to the rest of the world. The rest of the world does not have to give it back to you, right? Mm. And so if you think about stuff like um, dress driving down the highway and road rage, right? I would love for people to, you know, put up their hand and say, my apology, and they do something stupid on the road, <laughs> right? But usually that's not what happens because regardless of whether you it's your fault or the other person's, you're going to have a strike of a, of a spike of adrenaline in your body in that moment. And what adrenaline does is make you fight or flight. That's literally yeah. why we call it the fight or flight hormone. And so people get nervous, scared, anxious, and they respond in kind because they're responding to that emotional jolt that they're feeling, not necessarily what makes common, good common sense. So I know that about people. So when people do dumb stuff, I barely even put on my horn anymore. Like I only time I put them on if I genuinely need to grab your attention. Yeah. I think it may prevent the accident. But if it's after the fact, there's no sense in me doing that. That's just, just me like rubbing me. it in your face. <laughs> That's just me rubbing just it in like your face that. at that point. I'm right? like, man, I don't waste my time blowing my horn. If you my wife my it drives her crazy because I don't right. blow my horn. Don't do it. And then the worst part is if I do it, there's a good chance I may pull out a gun and shoot me. Yeah. Right? So it's not yeah. worth it. So that's what I tell people all the time. Like you have to deal with and understand what's going on in your body emotionally, what's going on cognitively in your head and how you behave or respond to it, right? And so since that's my approach and I, how I teach people, I have to apply that to myself. So with the conversation to your question with my daughter, it is, baby, I know when mommy tells you something that you don't feel good about or agree with, you have some visceral response in your body and you really want to jump out your skin in that moment. Logically, what she's saying does not make sense to you. So behaviorally, the thing that you want to do in response is scream, yell back, fuss back, defend yourself, whatever it may be. I'm saying you're not losing your value system by not responding. You can choose to not respond and still maintain how you believe and felt about that interaction, but you can change how you behave. Mm. So how you need to respond is just say, yes, mommy, do what she says. And then you can come to me and say, Daddy, mommy just act. And I like, I know I heard the whole thing. Mama crazy. Girl. Don't even worry about it. I know. And then you'll feel a whole lot better because someone affirmed what you were going through. And that's all you're looking for in that moment that you're not crazy, right? Yep, yep. And and that's and that's usually how I apply that. So yes, I I I it's easier when it's not me. So when I'm in the hot seat and it comes to me. <laughs> 
you know, I, 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 then I'm just preaching, right? But but it, it's obviously a lot harder to um, apply in real time. And so these are the conversations I have with my wife when cooler heads are prevailing, like, babe, look, it would help me so much if when you feel a certain way, if you can just come to me and talk to me or just wait till the emotion passes and then we come mm -hmm. with cooler heads and talk about it. And so like, I had to explain to us like, listen, you grew up in a household where all yelling and screaming led to was a little bit yelling and screaming. Maybe somebody stormed off and slammed the door. That was the end of it. Where I grew up, when yelling and screaming and cursing and voices started getting raised, physical violence fi finished that, <laughs> finished that. Whether it was in the house, in some instances, in some periods of my life, or outside the house. So that's trauma to me. Whenever yeah. I hear yelling and screaming, it's fight time. You know, I go on guard. I'm like, it's time to fight. And yeah. so I've had at least 20 years of being exposed to that. And even if I've had now been married 15 years, even if I'm approaching closer to a period where, hey, it's 15 years of that's not the outcome. No one likes the, the feeling of being yelled at and screamed at regardless, nah. right? And so the traumatic, the traumatic experience from childhood is what sticks with you more, is a more overwhelming the feeling, not the, hey, this didn't result in me getting swung on. You know what I mean? Like that, that doesn't that doesn't cross your mind. It's it's this feels like what it was growing up. Yeah. You know, and the last time I saw this in the community, six or seven people were fighting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean? So and so I have to remind her of that. Like my experience growing up was a whole lot different. And so my body doesn't respond well to hearing those things. And I need you to understand that. Yeah. Be we we're addressing uh mental health more in the black community, which I think is good. Um, because you're a mental health professional, I wanted to get your perspective on it. Mm -hmm. well, you can go ahead. But like, how, how do you feel? With, how do you feel we're headed? Do you do you like the the direction we're headed with mental health? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, so it's bittersweet. I'm I'm happy we are finally addressing it and, and broaching the topic. What we tend not we are what human beings tend to do naturally is we look at things from a very dichotomous, polarizing point of view, right? It's either all of this or all of that. We, we are so hard pressed to get humans to function in the gray area in the middle, right? Okay. So we went from, there ain't no such thing as mental health, you soft, you crazy, something wrong with you, you need to get some willpower, get over it, have a drink, whatever, to Everything now is my mental health. <laughs> Absolutely everything. And I cannot function at all. In fact, I need to quit work, sit at home and talk about it and dance on TikTok to show you that I'm so depressed <laughs> that I can't function. And you are going to respect that or else we're going to cancel you and so be it. And that is it. And job, you better figure out how to make me happy for not coming to work, right? Like that. that I'm struggling with that because again, I grew up with the, 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 the training education tutelage of the boomer, you know, it's whatever you're going through, you just stick it out and you deal with it and you go and that's it, right? I didn't grow up with this. This is so different to me. And so what, has, what, ha, what things have become is more, we are supporting people being victims, right? And what that does is that takes away from the real victims, right? Because there are people who really going through some things and really having chemical imbalances and struggles that they have that has nothing to do with them. Their life would otherwise be perfectly fine. Mm. They seriously have a chemical imbalance in their body that is keeping them from literally getting out the bed in the morning. 
Socially, we're trying to accept the idea that we are all so depressed and incapable of functioning that we all just need to stay home in the bed and not get up and not do anything. And everybody needs to feel sorry for us. And we need to talk about it on TikTok and everybody needs to like it or else. That's not how mental health works. That is not real mental health. And that is more dangerous because you are so as you think. So the more I think of myself as being incapable of doing anything, the more stigmatizing, the more victimizing I am making myself. And that is completely opposed and contrary to what mental health professionals do. My job is to help you to see that you have strengths and abilities within your own self to get you through whatever it is that you're going through. It's to tap into what you already have, whatever resiliency that you already have, whether it be from your environment, your home, your community, or if we need to put you on this pill to help you get by. Not to teach you that, yeah, you're right, life really sucks, everything about it sucks, and you should be able to stay home and lay down and not do anything because we should all accept that and that's okay. So it's basically we lack balance. We're lacking balance, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey man, I, listen, I, I'm so honored that you chose to grace my platform with your presence, man. It's been an honor, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And before, before we end this, is there any projects or anything that you're working on? Oh, so that's funny you'd say that. <laughs> so I, I am currently uh, a part of a podcast called the Black Cinematic Universe uh, at BCU, Black, at Black Cinematic Universe. And uh, the podcast actually looks at mostly like comic-y, geeky, sort of live action movies. We do reviews and to kind of discuss how we felt about particular films. We also address other things in the Black culture in general, whether it be something that's really jumping off the radar or any Black films that may come up. We give our opinion and perspective. And it's a bunch of dudes from PG County, pretty much mostly. And so we kind of give our own little unique twist and turn on that. So go on there and check us out, man. It's a pretty funny listen if you're into it at all. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's certainly something um, that you can appreciate. And how, how do they follow it? Like on Instagram? Yeah, on, on Instagram at Black Cinematic Universe. So you, you just check us out. We're on Instagram, um, Apple, and I think Spotify. Okay. Okay. Any books or anything for you personally? Or? No, no books in the making right now. I'm actually I'm actually in school working on that PhD because, you know, I, I was told that's what you needed to do was finish it out. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm actually working on a research concentration, a doctorate in, in, in research psychology. Uh, so once I get done with that, then then we'll maybe you have me come back on and we'll start talking about the future in books. Oh, definitely. And before we end this again, man, I thank you again for joining. And I just got to say, man, because we grew up, we I've known you since you was what, maybe six, seven. I can't yeah. even remember. It's been so long. Mm-hmm. So just to see you, the man you've grown into, man, I'm proud of you, man, the great family man you are, the, the educated professor you are, man. I'm just proud of you, man. And I hope you I know you're going to continue to do great things. So. Just keep up the excellent work. Excellent, man. I appreciate you for having me and uh, keep doing what you're doing. This is certainly important. People need to listen and hear about mental health in the Black community. And I'm just honored to be a guest for you today. All right, man. Well, all the best to you and your family and, and, and all the best in 2022. Thank you, man. Same to you. Take care. All right. I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to the podcast. I truly appreciate your support. You can follow me on Instagram at conversations underscore with underscore lamp. My Facebook is also conversations with lamp. You can listen to the sound. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud and Apple podcasts. Again, thank you all for listening. Have a great day.